0: This morning, congregation, in your Bibles, we would direct your attention to a reading from 2 Corinthians 13 in your pew Bible. You'll find that on page 1,336. Then after we read from the Word of God, we'll also be reading a part of Belgic Confession, uh, Article 29. You find that on page 185 in your Forms and Prayers book. Uh, A word of explanation for the day's plans. Uh, Providentially, we have preparatory this morning, uh, so I thought it appropriate to look at Article 29, again, with a little bit more of a focused uh, attention to the marks of the true Christian. And then this evening, today being the day that we commemorate Pentecost, this evening we'll consider at Pentecost uh, more specifically. Uh, so we read this morning from a passage of the Word of God, 2 Corinthians 13. This will be the third time I am coming to you, By the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word shall be established. I have told you before and foretell as if I were present a second time, and now being absent, I write to those who have sinned before and to all the rest. that If I come again, I will not spare, since you seek a proof of Christ speaking in me, who is not weak toward you, but mighty in you. For though he was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but we shall live with him by the power of God toward you. Examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you are disqualified? But I trust that you will know that we are not disqualified. Now I pray to God that you do no evil. Not that we should appear approved, but that you should do what is honorable, though we may seem disqualified. For we can do nothing against the truth, but for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak, and you are strong. And this also we pray, that you may be made complete. Therefore I write these things being absent, lest being present I should use sharpness, according to the authority which the Lord has given me for edification and not for destruction." Finally, brethren, farewell, become complete, be of good comfort, be of one mind, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Thus far, our reading from the Word of God. Uh, Then if you're following along in the Belgian Confession, we would turn to page 186 and the second new paragraph, approximately in the middle of page 186, we find the Belgian Confession saying this, As for those who are of the church, we can recognize them by the distinguishing marks of Christians, namely by faith and by their fleeing from sin and pursuing righteousness once they have received the one and only Savior, Jesus Christ. They love the true God and their neighbors without turning to the right or left, and they crucify the flesh and its works. Though great weakness remains in them, they fight against it by the Spirit all the days of their lives, appealing constantly to the blood, suffering, death, and obedience of the Lord Jesus, in whom they have forgiveness of their sins through faith in him." Congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, the apostolic exhortation comes this morning from Second Corinthians 13 to examine ourselves, to test ourselves whether we are in the faith. And I want to confess by way of introduction that there is a certain heavy solemnity to that exhortation and to that command of the Apostle Paul. And the solemnity and the heaviness of that exhortation is supported by also the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. He himself declared that on the final day of judgment, many, many would come and say, Lord, Lord, did we not do this and did we not do that? And Jesus Christ would answer, I never knew you, depart from me. That reality, and it is indeed a reality, we believe the Word of God to be truth. That reality impresses us with a certain heaviness and a certain solemnity to what we are going to be engaged in this morning. An exhortation from the Word of God For self-examination. If we can illustrate from the medical community, uh, there is the emphasis upon the necessity of annual checkups. Annual checkups, we are told, uh, where we have perhaps a full blood work that is done, and maybe other tests that are done. Uh, And the importance of these annual checkups is so that, hopefully, they can reveal if there is something wrong within the body earlier rather than later. Uh, the goal of the medical community with these annual checkups and various types of self examination also is early detection. Early detection, not just so that we can detect what is wrong, but early detection so that there might be a prompt application of the remedy to find the problem quickly so that we can then pursue the remedy promptly. And that's also something of what we want to attempt to do this morning, not by just way of a vain introspection, but rather an honest spiritual evaluation. Hearing the apostle cry out throughout the years of history, examine yourself. Test yourselves whether you are in the faith. And hearing the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, proclaim that there will be many on that day, on that final day, who boast of knowing Jesus Christ, but only in an external way, being professors of Christ, but not possessors of Christ. We turn our attention to our theme this morning, our belief concerning the marks of Christians We do so by noticing, first of all, the mark of distinction, and then secondly, the mark of repentance, and then thirdly, the mark of faith. So based upon our Word of God, as summarized within our Belgic Confession, what we believe about the marks of Christians, the mark of distinction, the mark of repentance, and the mark of faith. First of all, then, the mark of distinction, uh, there is the need for this distinction. Uh, There is Biblical revelation that is given. The Word of God is, of course, complete and it is authoritative as the Word of God. And the Word of God comes to us if we read it and if we study it and if we contemplate upon it. And the Word of God reveals ultimately that amongst all of humanity, with all of its various demographical divisions that can be made, there are two groups of human persons. And this is the testimony from Genesis to Revelation. It's seen especially, perhaps you might say, uh, in the book of Psalms, and it's seen in the opening Psalm, Psalm 1, as it contrasts uh, not so much based upon social status, not based upon ethnic diversity, but the distinction in Psalm 1, the distinction in the Word of God is between the godly and the ungodly, between those who are followers of the Lord and those who are rejecters of the Lord. And you can go back and you can see already uh, in the Cain and Abel narrative, there is this distinction. And you can see, of course, in the book of Revelation, uh, there are those who anticipate and greet the Lord Jesus Christ with songs of praise and of adoration. And then there are those who cry for the rocks and for the mountains to fall upon them, to hide them from the wrath of the Lamb in the great final day of judgment. So the Bible is clear. Two groups of human persons godly, ungodly, believing, unbelieving. And every single member of the human race who has ever lived, who is living, and who will ever live, finds themselves in one of those two categories, in one of those two camps. There's no in between, there's no middle ground, there's no third option, there's no third category. And you can't check other and just leave it unspecified, either godly or ungodly. And the Bible, of course, is very clear also that there are here in this life, in this experience of time and in the midst of history, there are individuals that the Bible categorizes as hypocrites. Now, Maybe that word isn't used so commonly anymore, and maybe that word, when it is used, it is not understood. And so you hear people say, well, oh, the church is just filled with hypocrites. Well, the church is not filled with hypocrites. But the Bible does say that there are some who are hypocrites within the church, the external church. Hypocrite, the word, actually means someone who puts on a mask uh, in a play, someone who plays the part, someone who tries to disguise or camouflage or cover up the reality that is internal by an external facade, the putting on of a mask. These are the individuals uh, that the Apostle Paul speaks of when he writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3 verse 5. They have a form of godliness, but they deny its power. And if you've kept your Bible open uh, this morning, uh, because these are difficult matters, because they are weighty matters, and because they are matters with which our hearts might recoil to some extent, we might say, this seems harsh, this seems unpopular, this seems uncommon to preach such matters. I I want to repeatedly reference Scripture Uh, and then encourage you to ask yourself, am what I'm saying in line with the words of Scripture? And so Matthew 13, verse 24, and following the Lord Jesus Christ in a parable, uh, reveals the fact that there are hypocrites, those who put on the mask, those who have an external facade of piety, but internally do not really possess saving faith. And so we read this parable that Jesus Christ gave. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field, but while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. A pause there in explanation. Uh, A a tear, this isn't a weed, this isn't something that's very clearly identifiable. Uh, now, of course, uh, herbicides work their, their wonders, but if you drive down the road and if you see perhaps, you know, uh, a field filled with soybeans, and then you see some weeds that have escaped the herbicides, they're very clearly identifiable. You don't have to look at it and go, well, I, I wonder, is that, a, is that a soybean plant or it's not? You go, no, that's a weed. But a tear, a tare is something that looks very similar to wheat except that it's empty inside. There's, there's no kernel of grain inside. Uh, and so the enemy, uh, he goes out and he sows. And of course, the Lord Jesus Christ is speaking about the kingdom of heaven here. And so it continues, but when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. So the servants of the owner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? He said to them, an enemy has done this. The servant said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No, lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, First gather together the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. Just notice the reiteration upon the fact that there are only two categories. Notice also that these categories are mixed within the kingdom of God as the kingdom of God finds historical expression in the church. Not, of course, the church triumphant, because that lies on the other side of God's judgment, uh, of His purifying judgment. But here, in the here and in the now, we must Acknowledge that not all who profess to be Christians are actually those who possess Christ. And so this distinction is necessary and it's important because it's important because of the reality of what Christ says. Let them both grow together in verse 30 of Matthew 13. And then when the reapers go out, there will be this division, this distinction, this separation. And the reality of eternity and of an eternal heaven and an eternal hell, that is the importance of understanding the distinction between a Christian and a non-Christian. The reality of a heaven and a hell that is eternal underscores the importance of the exhortation, test yourselves, examine yourselves, whether you be in the faith. We can think also of Matthew 22, uh, verse 11 uh, through 13, and the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, He was, of course, uh, full of grace and of truth, and He is full of grace and truth, but He also spoke uh, some of the most pointed words uh, about these matters. And so, for example, in Matthew 22, verse 11, he again uh, uses a parabolical saying, but when the king came in to see the guests, and it's the parable here of the wedding, the wedding feast, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. Now, we might think of the story would go and that the master, the king would say, oh, that's fine. We are opening. We are welcoming. We are affirming. No matter what attire you have, come into the feast and enjoy. But that's not, that's not what the message says in verse 12. So he came to him, friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot. Take him away and cast him into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You see, this is the great danger that we would appear at the eternal wedding feast without the wedding garment of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Maybe the answer is none, but how many times did you check your appearance in the mirror before you came this morning? Maybe Maybe none, but I, I would bet for most of us at least once, and I bet for many of us it was more than once, so much more entering into eternity before the mirror of the Word of God. Test yourselves. Examine yourselves to see if there is the apparel of the righteousness of Jesus Christ received by faith, lest we be cast out into that place where there is eternal weeping and gnashing of teeth. Given the reality that there are hypocrites mixed within the local church, it's important to identify this mark of distinction. Uh, This mark of distinction includes the mark of repentance, and that's our second point, the true Christian, the sincere Christian the child of God. Note carefully, they are not distinguished by a life of perfection. They are not distinguished by a complete absence of sin, but they are distinguished by the exercise of the spiritual activity of repentance. Uh, And that then demands that we consider what is repentance. It's a word that's often used within the Bible, and in its basic meaning, it has this idea of turning, of turning, of turning as far as our mental perception and our mental judgment concerning actions. So, when the Bible says that a certain action and, yes, a certain attitude or even a certain desire is contrary to the law of God, the ungodly mind says, no, this is really good. Repentance comes when the Word of God takes the priority within our minds and we agree with the Word of God in its testimony calling an action, calling an attitude, calling a desire, an inclination, sinful. That's the first step of this spirit-worked repentance. When we come and we say, yes, I believe, I agree, I concur with the Word of God that this is contrary to the will of God. And you notice that in that definition or that explanation, the Word of God is supreme. It is the final authority. It's not as if we look around and we go, well, this expert says that, and, and this social pundit says that, uh, and the polls uh, of the entire Western world say that this is good or this is evil. No, we come to the God of Scripture, and we submit our minds to the Word of God. And so repentance is this turning within our mind, but also then uh, the, the beginning of the turning within our will, that will that is the, the I want of our person, when we walk in unbelief, when we walk in impenitence, then the will says, I want what I want. And wasn't that the essence of what Eve first did? She looked upon the fruit and she saw that it was good. And she wanted what she wanted, regardless of the word of God, regardless of the commands of God. And wanting what she wanted, she took the forbidden fruit and did eat. And so sin came to impact the entire human race. But repentance, repentance is when the Spirit, by the work of the Word, grants us the ability to see sin in line with the testimony of the Word of God and then to begin to turn away. And you can think of the contrast between Eve uh, with Joseph in the Old Testament uh, when he was tempted uh, and he turned away. His will turned away, and He said, how can I sin against my Master and against God? And then the, the third element of repentance is fleeing away from sin and fleeing away from the occasions of sin and of temptations to sin. And this at times must be radical action. This is what Jesus Christ says in Matthew 5, verse 29. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. And now many, they're quick to go in, well, is this literal or is it figurative? And I believe that you can get so bound up in that discussion that you miss the point of what Jesus Christ is saying. Take radical action, if need be, to repent. Take radical action. And at times you'll you'll talk with individuals who are stuck in a pattern of sin, and and you you say, well, maybe it would be helpful if you would do this. Oh, no, I can't do that. That, that, That's too radical. There's, There's no way I could give that up. I need this for that. would it not be more advantageous to give that up and save your soul than keep that? And enter into damnation. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell." And so the true Christian exercises repentance by recognizing their own sin by avoiding sin, by crucifying the flesh, by fighting against the sinful inclinations of the flesh, by the power of the Holy Spirit all the days of their life. And and, and this, I believe, from Scripture and also from talking with those who are mature in the Christian faith, those who have walked many years with the Lord, over and over and over you will hear this testimony from them as they come to the the end of their earthly pilgrimage, they just simply want to be done with the battle against the old man. They just simply long to be free from the old man. The old man being those sinful tendencies, those sinful inclinations. But that freedom lies on the other side of the Jordan. Until that moment... The Christian fights. The Christian fights first and foremost with their sin. And notice that it's their sin. Uh, The Apostle Paul, uh, he writes to the Corinthians. And he says, test yourselves whether you are in the faith. Now, perhaps you know something of what the city of Corinth was like. The city of Corinth was the most immoral city in the Roman Empire. But notice that the Apostle Paul, he doesn't spend a lot of time in his closing words to this Christian church to consider the sins of the city of Corinth. Now, we're not denying that there is a place and a responsibility for Christians to be salt and to be light and to seek the well-being of the city. That's not the point we're making, but we are making this point Paul says to the Corinthian church, test yourselves. And there is a fear that we become so focused on the sins of our culture that we ignore or excuse the sins of our soul. Now, which one will place your soul in jeopardy? The sins of our culture the secret sins of our soul. Test yourselves, as I also hear this exhortation, to test myself whether we be in the faith. Well, what does that mean to be in the faith? That brings us into our third point, the mark of faith. And notice very clearly that that's the exhortation that the Apostle Paul gives. Examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith test yourselves. So this examination, this self-examination that we again are called to in the week that lies ahead, this does not have this idea, examine yourselves whether you have attained moral perfection. That's why we chose for our text of pardon. If any of us say that we are without sin, we deceive ourselves and we make God a liar. But test yourselves whether you are in the faith whether you are exercising true saving faith by the power of the Holy Spirit and by the influence of the Word of God. Uh, I want to just consider in this third point, first of all, the object of faith. To be in the faith means, of course, to be living a life that exercises faith, faith that is Summarized by our catechism as being a certain knowledge of the gospel, especially of the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, and not only a certain knowledge, but also then a trust or a reliance upon the gospel. And, and past ministers and theologians, and maybe you have heard this statement, have said at times that the most dangerous distance is the distance from your mind to your heart. Because true saving faith. It is knowing Jesus Christ and knowing what He has done, but it's not just knowing intellectual data. It's not just being able to, in your cognitive abilities, to say, oh yes, I know the divine nature, the human nature, the one person. I know all the steps of humiliation and exaltation. I can quote them from memory. That's all, of course, very good and proper, but there must also then be the reliance upon the person of Jesus Christ, and a reliance upon the work of Jesus Christ as Savior. And I think that this perhaps is most wonderfully illustrated, and of course this isn't the only illustration, but in Matthew 9 we have the account there of the woman who had been diagnosed with an issue of blood. And for now, we don't have to go into details about what her medical condition was, other than that it ceremonially, ceremonially would have made her unclean. Uh, and Luke tells us she had spent all that she had seeking a cure. Uh, in the equivalents of today, she had been to every doctor, and she had tried every alternative medicinal remedy, and she had been to the male clinic, and she had been to the Cleveland clinic, and she had exhausted her savings to no avail. Imagine the sense of absolute desperation that this woman would have had. No doubt the ongoing loss of blood would have left her physically weak, socially she would have been an outcast financially she is in ruins you might say she's without hope but then Matthew records uh, the wonderful story in chapter 9 verse 20 and suddenly a woman who had a flow of blood for 12 years came from behind him and touched the hem of his garment for she said to herself and, and the verb there is that she was saying this over and over and over She said to herself, and she said to herself, and she said to herself, if only I may touch his garment, I shall be made well. And I would present to you this morning that that is the simple exercise of saving faith. If only I may touch the hem of his garment, I shall be made well. She knew who Jesus Christ was, and because she knew who he was and because she recognized her own dilemma, she went to him saying, if I may touch the hem of his garment, I shall be made well. If, if, I, can, if I can lay my hands, and here we speak, of course, in her sense, it was in a very real, physical manner, but in our sense, it's a spiritual exercise. If I may lay the hands of my soul upon the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, I shall be made well. And that's the exercise of faith. To cast all other hope, which is really no hope at all, all of my own works, they don't even enter into the equation, all of my spiritual activities, it doesn't enter into the equation when it comes to my spiritual wholeness and my justification and my standing before God. But if, if I may lay hold of Christ, then I will be made well. And so in our self-examination, this ultimately is the question. Test yourselves whether you are in the faith. Are you saying to yourself in your soul by the, by the Word of God and by the Spirit of God, if I, may, if I may lay hold of Christ, then I shall be made well? Is that, is that the heartbeat of your, of your religion, of your spiritual exercises? Not just, well, I am a member of a conservative Dutch community, so I will be made well. Not just I have an external facade of piety, and therefore I will be made well. Not just I I attend what I deem to be the most conservative church in the area, so I will be made well. What would Paul have said of all of that? He would have counted it all dung for the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And so I speak to myself, and I assure you of this, I speak to myself first and foremost, because this danger perhaps is greatest for a minister of the gospel to say, well, I'm a minister of the gospel so all is well. I have all of the Orthodox theologians' books on my bookshelf, so all is well. I've preached many, many times on the gospel, so all is well. Well, what would Paul have said of that? He would have counted all of that rubbish as well. So I need to examine and you need to examine. Do we have something of this spirit that this woman had? if I may touch the hem of his garment in the exercise of repentance and faith, I shall be made well. Congregation, eternity hangs in the balances to our relationship to the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, examine yourselves, whether you are in the faith. Amen. Also then in connection with preparatory, we'll read a portion of the form, Form 2, for the celebration of the Lord's Supper. You can find this on page 44 in your Forms and Prayers book in the Pew Rack. This form gives us the explanation for why we engage in spiritual preparation and also gives us some instruction for how to engage uh, in this preparation. Preparation. So, Form 2, page 44, preparatory exhortation. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, since we hope next Lord's Day to celebrate the blessed sacrament of the Lord's Supper, we are called to prepare our hearts by rightly examining ourselves. For the Apostle Paul has written, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the blood, the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Therefore, you should examine your life, and considering your own sin and the wrath of God against it, be sure that you humble yourself in repentance before God. Examine your heart to be sure that you trust in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation, believing that your sins are forgiven holy by grace because of our lord's sacrifice on the cross finally examine your conscience to be sure that you resolve to live in faith and obedience before your lord and in love and peace with your neighbor god will surely receive at the table of his son all who truly repent of their sins believe in jesus christ as their savior and desire to do his will all those however who do not repent who do not put their trust in the Lord Jesus, and who have no desire to lead a godly life are warned according to the command of God to keep themselves from the Holy Sacrament. If any of us is living in disobedience to Christ and in enmity with his neighbor, he must repent of his sin and reconcile himself to his neighbor before he comes to the Lord's table. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. This solemn warning is not designed, however, to discourage penitent sinners from coming to the Holy Sacrament. We do not come to the supper as though we were righteous in ourselves, but rather to testify that we are sinners and that we look to Jesus Christ for our salvation. Although we do not have perfect faith, do not serve and love God with all our hearts, and do not love our neighbors as we ought, we are confident that the Savior accepts us at His table when we come in humble faith with sorrow for our sins and with a will to follow Him as He commands. And since it is necessary for us to come to the sacrament in good conscience, we urge any who lack this confidence to seek from the minister or any elder of this church such counsel as may quiet his conscience or lead to the conversion of his life. All then who are truly sorry for their sins, who sincerely believe in the Lord Jesus as their Savior, and who earnestly desire to lead a godly life, ought to accept the invitation now given and come with gladness to the table of their Lord. Now let us pray together. Almighty God, who has given us the gospel of Jesus Christ and provided a most wonderful communion with Him through the mystery of the sacrament, we do indeed need Your grace to enable us to prepare our hearts for the reception of the Holy Communion. To all who sincerely believe in Your Son and truly repent of their sins, grant assurance of Your gracious readiness to receive and bless them in the supper of their Lord. To all who have not yet repented, and have not yet put their trust in the Lord Jesus, grant a restraining fear of this supper, lest their condemnation be greater. But have mercy upon these, and grant them grace to repent of their sins, and seek their salvation in You and Your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. We confess, O Father, that we have all offended Your majesty and deserve Your judgment. We have transgressed in our thoughts, our words, and our deeds. Truly there is no strength in us, Be merciful, O God, and grant us your pardon. And let us come to the sacrament in the joy of your forgiving love. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who with you and the Holy Spirit, the one only God, lives and reigns forever. Amen.